As a believer, reading God's Word is a critical part of your daily spiritual journey. And because it's so important, we've created a unique new resource to help you immerse yourself in biblical truth and open your eyes to all God's Word has for you. It's a free PDF download called The Word One-to-One that takes you on a guided journey through John chapter one. With biblical text and short commentary, each page provides insights that will strengthen your faith in an easy to read guided format. There's truly no other resource like this. Download your free PDF copy today at premierinsight.org forward slash resources. That's premierinsight.org forward slash resources. Matters of Life and Death, a podcast from Premier Unbelievable. Hello and welcome to Matters of Life and Death. Um, I'm Tim Wyatt and uh, this is the episode really picking up on what we talked about last week. Uh, which was all about uh, prenatal screening, uh, the different technologies that are now being used, particularly here in the UK and the NHS, to, to offered to, to pregnant women um, to test for various conditions w- w- before the child is born, and some of the challenges and, and ethical dilemmas that they that they th- that they throw up. Um, you mentioned in passing, John, last week that that you didn't really think that knowledge was always automatically a good thing. C- could you expl- explain a bit more about why why that is? Because I think that might strike people as a slightly odd thing to say, particularly as a as a scientist, you know, devoted to discovering more knowledge. Yes, and I I think this is uh, an interesting thing because it it's a distinction between a kind of a modern secular liberal perspective, which, which tends to see truth and and knowledge as an unalloyed good Um, and a a more nuanced position as a Christian which which sees in a fallen world um, knowledge can actually be very damaging Um, and and therefore there is both a place for confidentiality I mean one of the it's like going off a slight tangent but it it is interesting that the, it was the Hippocratic uh, group of physicians back in the uh, ancient world who were really the first to recognise that confidential medical information could, if that was released into the society as a whole, could be extremely damaging. And therefore, part of the Hippocratic Oath was that I will treat all information that I um, be- become privy to because of my work as a physician as a most holy secret and um and ever since then uh, medical confidentiality medical confidentiality has been seen as a an incredibly important um way of protecting patients from harm so there's a recognition right from the right from there that 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 some information cannot be just released into the public domain It, it it that great harm can be done and I, I think it's a similar kind of, of of idea that understanding the future uh, isn't an unalloyed good I mean just do a thought experiment suppose that by doing a, uh, some kind of test or scan I could predict with almost 100% accuracy when you were going to die and what you were going to die from 
you know, would you like to have the result of that scan? And I think when you put it like that, you start to think, well, what effect is that knowledge going to have on my life? You know, is, is that going to be a good thing? Is it going to help me to really live a full life and knowing how I'm going to die and when I'm going to die? And I, I think in a fallen world, knowledge about the future, which is often what genetics gives us, is a kind of um, an unhelpful thing. And it, it is fascinating to me that in the biblical narrative, predicting the future uh, in any kind of specific way is actually seen as a negative thing. It's, it's part of soothsaying. Um, and uh, God's people are told not to go to um, magicians and necromancers who are going to tell you about the future. Um, so there's a distinction between prophecy, which is seeing the broad outlines of God's plans and purposes for the future, versus this kind of soothsaying, which is seen as a, actually a negative and destructive kind of activity. And I just wonder whether predictive genetics, this ability to predict uh, what the future holds by using genetics, it has an aspect of of a modern version of soothsaying. Hmm. I mean, it strikes me up the front of course you know what what was it that adam and eve were forbidden from doing it was from eating the tree which would give them the knowledge of good and evil and so from the outset god recognized that this knowledge which he possessed could be destructive to to his creatures made in his image his new human beings and for their own good warned them you don't want that knowledge you're not supposed to have that knowledge it's not good for you um, but it also strikes me as well, I was when you're listening to you, that, that there's often phrase that's often banded around is that knowledge is power. But actually in this concept, in this que question of screening and testing, a lot of this knowledge is really powerlessness. It's it's insight without the ability to change, as you say, that insight about the future without the ability to change the future is is quite can be quite toxic, really. It's a form of determinism, isn't it? And and to some extent, it's it's just false. I mean, the idea of genetic determinism you know this idea that my entire life and future yeah just depends on on the precise nature of my uh, genetic code it, i mean it's just rubbish it, it it's it's completely false but it's an idea which is very potent and of course that's that's even true you know if you uh, using prenatal testing discover that your unborn baby has down syndrome that doesn't tell you what their personality is going to be like or mm -hmm. how they're going to respond and whether they'll be very musical you know, how they how they live their life well, all these things are not determined by your chromosomes um but there is a kind of implication that once we've got the chromosomes now we know what the future holds and i suppose there's also this kind of unwritten assumed assumption that the doctors are simply imparting information and it's just value free it's just facts it's just accurate scientific genetic information and and it's up to the the parents to decide what to do with that but of course as we discussed last week really parents aren't remotely equipped to do that and and i imagine a, a doctor spend a lot of the time saying your the test shows your child as x and the next question is not thank you doctor i will go and make my decision the next question is well, what do I do? 
and the doctor is desperately saying well that's not really for me to say but the parent the parent is saying well you can't just drop this knowledge bomb on me to say my child has an x percentage chance of having this condition i never heard of and then just walk away how is that how is that good good care yeah and this is very much part of how we understand a, a doctor patient relationship I and mean, historically um, it was a very paternalistic relationship, a kind of father-child relationship. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm the doctor, I, I'm, I'm the father, and you've got this little problem in the test, and don't you worry about it. We'll sort it all out for you, and we'll make the right decisions for you. No need to worry your little head about it kind of thing, which is obviously inappropriate in, in, in the modern world. But I think what is often replacing it is where the power is completely reversed the other way around and it becomes a kind of client-technician relationship where uh, I tell you, well, you've got this option, you know, you could have this test, you could have that test, you could have an operation, you know, we, we can give you the baby, we'll take the baby away if you want. You choose, it's your, it's your choice, it's your body, it's your life, it's your pregnancy. And, and, and then... Uh, the. The problem is, of course, is that how can I make those choices? I don't know. You know, I'd need to go away and read every textbook before I could make any choice. Um, so I think a better model, a third way, if you like, is an expert-expert relationship where uh, I, the physician, am supposed to be the expert in terms of the diagnosis and the genetics and the possible implications and what other investigations are available. Uh, but you are the expert in terms of your life, your philosophy, your history, your family, the things that really matter to you. And the task is that for us to meet together as experts with mutual respect and to try to find a way forward of consensus. And, 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 there, and, and I'm sharing my expertise. And that may include, you know, if you ask me, well, what would you do, doctor, in this situation? I'll say, well, if you really want to know, uh, this is how I would face it but in the end it's going to be your choice you have to make that decision and did that happen in your own practice i mean you must have had lots of agonizing conversations with parents who had been told something unexpected about their newborn child and did they ever ask you well what would you do in my shoes and did you did you avoid the question did you have to just say do you know what here's what i would do yeah i did um i i wouldn't answer it immediately i would push back slightly and say you know I think before I answer that question, I think you need to think some more about, you know, what really matters to you, what, you know, and, and, and you may think this, you may think that and so on. But in the end, if, if, if it was clear that somebody really would not say, well, I, I will tell you, this is, if, if this was our situation, this is what we would do. And in, in the case of a child who was diagnosed with severe disabilities, I'd say we would uh, carry on the pregnancy if this was our child and we would try to make sure that the baby had every possible treatment and care uh, after birth. And even if that meant that, that the baby was going to die within a few hours or days, we would still do everything we could possibly to care and love for our baby. But in the end, I would then say, that's, that would be my choice. But the question is, what's your choice? You have to, that's the decision you have to make. Hmm. And I think that from from my perspective as as a non-healthcare professional someone who is you know a recipient of of treatment rather than someone delivering it that's actually what i want i mean that it feels like in, in in my lifetime the nhs has been kind of gripped by this patient choice match which has a lot of positives but has has really um 
puts you in an awkward spot. I mean, I remember a few years ago going with someone to to A and E on the advice of you know NHS one 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 after we rang up because they were having some unusual kind of heart and cognitive symptoms and after a long wait we finally get shown to the doctor and and he kind of reads the notes and and then says turns and says well right what would you like me to do and there was this long pause and i was like <laughs> well i think we're here to find out <laughs> that's what that's what we're here for <laughs> that's what we've come for it's it was just it was this totally bizarre like punting the ball back to us and i'm like you spent 20 years honing your craft and understanding the body so i don't need to know how to treat myself i'm here to be treated by the expert and not as you say not in a paternalistic kind of patronizing way but you can swing i, w- I wonder if we've overcorrected and gone too far the other way yeah no i i totally agree and i i think the idea of the physician as a wise friend you know what what you want is someone who you feel is on your side uh, and who is bringing wisdom and knowledge to the table, but is not going to dominate and coerce, uh, but is going to be there, someone you can lean on, someone you can you can uh, feel is committed to you and your best interests. And I, I think you're right. I, th- I think this there, there was very definitely a phase in the NHS when the the medicine was being compared to a service industry. You know, we're we're basically just providing a similar service to supermarkets or to any other, you know, customer-facing service industry. And therefore, you know, the most important thing is that the customer is always right. You know, whatever you want, it's always it's always there for you. And and we want people to complain because complaints are really important because that's the way we improve our service and the, the, you know there was a phase when nhs management was filled with this kind of um, service industry approach and and of course the whole point is that healthcare is not like a supermarket um, and therefore it's it's a very inappropriate model um, however attractive it is in, in in a certain sort of liberal free market economy of Life and Death, a podcast from Premier Unbelievable. And so coming back to the kind of thinking about prenatal screening as, as Christians, do you think, therefore, we touched on this briefly last ep- last episode, but do you think, therefore, a healthy way, if you're a Christian and you're con- con- personally convinced that it wouldn't be right to abort a child because they had a disability, that other than the kind of ultrasound and the other and things like that, that you can actually do something about the healthiest easiest option is to say you know when i'm offered the choice on my menu of services to say no thank you to the nipt and no thank you to to x y and z other tests that may become available yeah i think i think there are two separate things there one is the there are some people who say yeah, I, I hear the argument that this, you know, that every life is precious and is special. But actually, you know, surely it is true that for some people born with with disabilities and, and uh, congenital abnormalities, that they do face terrible suffering. They face uh, years of treatment and invasive 
unpleasant experiences and and why is it wrong to out of compassion to say we should end that life it's it's not it's not saying anything about disability in general it's it's simply saying that the compassionate thing to do uh, if you know that your child is going to have a life full of suffering um, is to have an abortion so there certainly are uh, Christians including some some of my good friends that I've talked privately about this where they have uh, said and I know they have on occasion had abortions but when the diagnosis of a serious fetal abnormality was made uh, so I, I think there there are Christian arguments that, that are made in that direction I think the other uh, argument that is sometimes said is that I'm not planning to have an abortion but I would re- like to prepare myself Yes, and therefore by having the test I can prepare myself I can go through the rest of the pregnancy uh, planning and preparing for this baby who has special needs and that 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 is a valuable and important role i can see i can see the the thinking there though i suppose it does it's it's almost dangling the forbidden fruit in front of you isn't it it's giving it, it, it if if the test comes back positive for one of these conditions even if you were initially were at the outset said do you know what i, I don't believe in abortion for disability and I, I just want to be prepared when you have that knowledge and then you have to sit day by day, week by week. And, you know, in the UK, you can abort all the way up to a term for disability, so there's no cutoff. I wonder whether the temptation, such maybe that's the wrong word, uh, hangs over you like that. It becomes it becomes a challenge. And, and balancing that stress over the ability to, as you say, prepare in advance is an interesting one. But I think what I struggle with, the initial argument, the kind of argument from compassion, as it were, that, that um, you know, why why would we bring children into the world who we think are going to suffer from a terrible condition it it strikes me as as relatively self-centered because really the 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 parent is saying i imagine that my child should they be born with disability would rather they were dead but in truth that they don't know that and I'm pretty confident if you actually go and talk to people who are alive today with disabilities, none of them say, do you know what, I wish my mum or dad had aborted me before I was born. Yes, and and this is what is sometimes called the disability paradox, um, which has been repeatedly uh, investigated and, and demonstrated. And that is that if you ask somebody who doesn't have a, a physical disability to imagine that they, for instance, were living life in a wheelchair or that they were blind or they had some other severe physical impairment or disability, and then to say, what, and what do you think your quality of life would be? What do you, how do you think you would re- respond in that? Um, most people say oh, it would be very negative. You know, uh, it would be horrible. I mean, to imagine spending the whole of your life in a wheelchair or spending the whole of your life with that problem, I, I, it would just be terrible. I, I, it would be horrific. My life would be horrific. But when you then uh, interview people who are actually in that situation and you say, uh, can you describe what your life is, people with disabilities, including those with sometimes very severe disabilities, actually tend to give a very positive um, statement of, of the value of their life and and, and, and say, actually... 
you know, yes, I have frustrations, but then who doesn't have frustrations? But actually, there are so many positive things about my life, and I really enjoy this, and I look forward to that. And and I, most of the time, I'm not spending my time thinking of only I, I, I didn't have this impairment. In fact, what many disabled people say, my real problem is not so much the disability itself. My real problem is social responses. It's other people's responses to my disability. Uh, it's how society responds to me. That's my real problem. That's what really causes me difficulty. Yeah, this is the kind of social model of disability, isn't it? Which which says that, you know, we see the person in the wheelchair and think, gosh, how awful their life must be their life is inevitably going to be terrible because they can't use their legs but actually if the world was full of ramps and lifts they they would their, their lack of capacity in their legs would would be would be less or potentially even no no big deal at all and so that their disability is actually a product of society not a product of their physiology um which i think is can be overstated but is certainly a, a powerful and compelling kind of way to to, to flip the thinking of disability on its head Think about it, as you say, from, from through the eyes of the disabled rather than from the kind of paternalistic, able-bodied people looking down on them. Yes, and what, what's worse is that what is then suggested is that the medical profession are really implementing society's prejudices against disabled people so that instead of changing society uh, so that it's more accepting of disabled people and making sure that people with wheelchairs and with visual impairments and so on are being able to live their lives normally, instead of doing that... We're employing uh, medical technology um, and medical specialists in order to try to uh, eliminate people before birth uh, who have these disabilities. So we're just implementing a kind of societal prejudice uh, against disabled people. I mean, it's an extreme version of, of, of putting it. And certainly my experience of talking uh, to parents who've been in this sort of appalling, agonizing dilemma is no, none of that is relevant really um, or none of that tends to come out in the conversation what comes out is much more this this worry about about suffering and you're right that um, you could argue that this is all um, subjective um, and and not based in reality but I do know that for many parents this is a a very real and painful decision. And they often feel that they're left with an impossible decision. Now you've given me this information, doctor. I remember one one person, one woman saying to me very vehemently, she said, you've put me in an impossible decision. Either I am responsible for bringing this child with severe problems into the world, or I am responsible for killing my baby. I mean... What kind of choice is that? Hmm. And and you can see how how the, um, the the pain that lies behind that kind of decision, and and that's really why I think there is an argument that better not to know, and and better not to have that decision forced on you. I think what frustrates me in some of my more kind of cynical and intemperate moments is that I hear a lot of the language from people who have chosen, or who say they would hypothetically choose to have an abortion should they be given a kind of diagnosis of some kind of abnormality or genetic condition and it's always phrased in the compassion you know it, it wouldn't be fair to bring this person who who, who would suffer uh, you know that they wouldn't have a good life and and wouldn't it be better for, for everyone 
and and I just can't I have this niggling doubt in the back of my mind that really subconsciously what they're actually what they actually are is I don't want to be the parent to a disabled child I think that sounds like hell and that is not something I signed up for when I wanted to have a baby and so let's start from scratch and wipe the slate clean but that it's a bit too brutal to be honest and say it out loud and so they frame the argument around the needs of the of the child as as a as an unconscious psychological defense against admitting to themselves actually they're too afraid or dare i say even potentially a little too selfish to be the the parent of a disabled child well i think there's a lot in what you say except that it isn't going on at a conscious level no, I, th- I think in fact that there is very deep sort of suppressed emotions and feelings often in these kind of dilemmas, and I think this is revealed in in the interesting evidence that shows that there is a, a significant incidence of of distress and psychological problems, depression and so on following abortion. But what's very interesting to me is that all the evidence shows that it's significantly higher the risk of and the incidence of uh, depression, psychological upset, and and long long lasting psychological problems, it's higher when an abortion is being carried out for a fetal abnormality, than when it's being carried out for a so called social abortion. And that's interesting, isn't it? Because I think there were many people who might say, well, I think a social abortion for no reason that that's quite wrong. But but an abortion for fetal abnormality, yes, I can understand why that would be the right decision. And yet it's those decisions that seem to have a greater incidence of uh, psychiatric and psychological distress. And I think it reflects this exactly the kind of conflicting emotion. You know, am I genuinely, when I've decided to end the life of my child, am I genuinely acting in their best interests? Am I genuinely doing it for them? Or was I being selfish? Am I am I protecting myself? Uh, And and. And is that what a mother should do, to put her own interests before those of her child? And and after I've had the abortion, then I see a child with Down syndrome walking down the street with their parents, and I suddenly think, gosh, is that what my child would have looked like? And, and did I do the right thing? And that child looks very happy, and would my child have been happy? And and so there's there's a very complex kind of mix there of, of deep psychological... Uh, forces and emotion and and I know that um, counsellors uh, like Celia my wife who, who've been involved in, in counselling women often in these situations often it takes weeks of sort of exploration and patient listening and sharing and sometimes crying together to to really come to a, a, a place of, of understanding and reconciliation about some of these very very painful decisions yeah no i think that's absolutely right clearly i mean we always act with mixed motives don't we and who can honestly kind of with any of the weighty decision of this nature honestly go backwards and and pick through you know what is what is genuine self-reflection and and what was my real instigating factor here and and what was just me kind of erecting psychological defenses because i don't want to believe that i am the kind of person who would do x y and z and that's the kind of thing that needs to be worked out in in therapy over many many weeks, months, years, even. I suppose. Yeah, I think one of the really uh, interesting and, and positive things that that's happening is is the development of what is sometimes called disability theology of 
of a, a an understanding that instead of this entirely negative view, this this idea view that that human beings are meant to be perfect, and and then to the degree to which uh, we're all disabled, that that is a a kind of negative and almost subhuman way of of existing, and and historically, sometimes that's been a kind of theological perspective. Uh, I know that uh, in the the distant past, the birth of a child with malformations was sometimes seen as a sort of portent, a sign from God of some judgment or um, some other. So it, it's very much this this person with disabilities, this child was seen as a, as an other, as a sort of strange almost subhuman uh, entity. There's been much more recently a a very much more positive move to to seeing that disabled people uh, within the community sometimes seem to reflect something very precious and unique, uh, far from it being a negative and uh, subhuman existence. Often people with with disabilities, with learning difficulties, uh, are bringing something into our society as a unique reflection, a a revelation of God himself. I think this is, that's really true. And it's, it's one of the things that's particularly acute. I know this example we keep using when you come back to Down syndrome, because I think at the same time, tragically, that, that the kind of abortion rates have been ticking up and fewer and fewer Down syndrome children are being born actually those who are living with down syndrome are having better and better outcomes and you know we used to think of down syndrome as this kind of horrendous crippling disability uh would put children in kind of homes and and they would die in their teens or early 20s and now i think life expectancy for for someone with down syndrome is in its 50s and is increasing all the time and there is a rise of people often refer to them as self-advocates i think of a, of a lovely christian woman called heidi krauter who's been doing quite a lot of activism in the uk around uh, abortion rules on disability and she's someone with down syndrome who lives independently and is married and and is a really i you know I've, I've seen interviews of her as a really charming engaging person speaks very passionately and obviously very truthfully out of her own experience on this issue and and it and it's on one level it's really wonderful to see as you say how people's thinking is shifting on disability and that we are recognizing uh, how much they contribute how what the richness to the to the family of, of 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 god's people they bring and at the same time you know we're aborting more and more of them before they have a chance to to grow into these to the, to the self-advocates and 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 these huge benefits to society that they could be that's absolutely right. I had the privilege of meeting Heidi Crowter um, just a few weeks ago. I acted as an expert witness in the case where she uh, there was a judicial review about the law on uh, the abortion of uh, Down, uh, Down syndrome and uh, other fetuses with abnormality, and which she undertook. And I, I met her at a conference, and she, as you say, is absolutely remarkable lady, full of life and laughter and um and 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 certainly there's there's no doubt that a an understanding that that people who are different from us uh, can actually bring a richness into the human community and that our calling is 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 to love and accept and respect them and and learn from them as much as as we can pass on for to them as well so I, I'm 
looking towards the future, I, I'm positive. I, I think, yes, there are some uh, really challenging questions coming. And as genetic science advances, and particularly as this kind of free market in genetic testing is increasing, uh, I think something we're going to come back to in future podcasts is look at what the implications are of the advancing uh, genetic science and so on. But I do think the rise of disability theology, the, the much greater and positive awareness of, of, of how much we have to learn from uh, people with disabilities and the importance of Christian communities welcoming and accepting and, and being um, open towards people with disabilities. I, I think we've a lot to learn and, and, and there does feel a sense we're making progress in this very important area. Mm. And just lastly, then it, it makes me wonder what what difference it would make people's decisions if you know in every time every time they were sitting in a room and receiving the confirmation that their their unborn child had Down syndrome, as well as speaking to a doctor, they were also able to speak to someone like Heidi, you know, with that sort. That's you know more knowledge, more facts, uh, but coming but telling a slightly different story to the one perhaps the kind of medicalized testing testing story that we discussed earlier. Well, exactly, and that's something that I and others have have pushed for, um, and and there is a slogan from the disability rights movement which says nothing about us without us, and so you would say, well, prenatal screening is definitely about people with disabilities, and therefore they should be there and they should be involved. The interesting thing is that many medical professionals actually push back about that. And they feel bizarrely that it would be manipulative or coercive or insensitive uh, to um, encourage people to to meet um, adults and children with Down syndrome uh, or families looking after children with Down syndrome if they are wrestling with this um, question about prenatal diagnosis. So it's because choice and freedom of choice is seen as the supreme good and 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 this sort of rather paternalistic view that we we mustn't influence that choice in any in any coercive or unhelpful way so only some additional forms of knowledge are good then they're effectively conceding there aren't they the knowledge of from the test is good but the knowledge of lived experience from someone who's had down syndrome is would be too upsetting too coercive well, there is a curious mix of paternalism and liberalism uh, in the medical profession, I'm afraid. <laughs> Something to dig into in future episodes, no doubt. But we've run out of time again. Uh, thanks, thanks, Charles. It's been a, a really interesting and thought-provoking discussion. I hope you guys listening at home have enjoyed it as well. Um, there, there's lots more on, on John's website, johnwhite.com, about some of these issues around prenatal screening, abortion, fetal abnormality. That was a large part of his kind of medical practice. And I also must point out uh, the book, the book which gives this podcast its very name, also called Matters of Life and Death, uh, which is a great read. Um, uh, it has a whole chapter on prenatal screening, fetal screening and the quest for the healthy baby, which is a lot more information and, and some interesting studies um, that, that kind of further elucidate these issues. So I recommend getting a copy of Matters of Life and Death, the book. Uh, if you can, there are links on, on John's website where you can buy that. But thanks for listening. Uh, as always, you can get in touch with us. Just email molad at premier.org.uk. But otherwise, uh, we'll see you next week. Thank you. You've been listening to Matters of Life and Death, a podcast.
podcast from Premier Unbelievable.